Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. How you holding up over there, Sherry? I'm good. Really? Because you've been kind of under the weather here for a couple of days. I feel kind of guilty because I think you... You contracted something for me. Yeah. We've yeah. been passing the junk around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good though. You're okay? Mm-hmm. You're a you're a trooper. I like that about you. Well, it's all of us. It's all of us Gen Xers. You know, we may all be alcoholics, but we get shit done. I don't not all of us are alcoholics. I don't, oh, does it is that offensive? Well What is, is No, I'm just saying don't term? you know you don't need to make every one of us an alcoholic. I don't know. We all got our stuff, but we get our stuff done, man. Just bring in a box of Kleenex and let's go. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty great. I don't know if you can tell. I got a sneeze coming, actually. Um, cause, Mind over matter. Cause yesterday was uh, our youngest child's birthday. Yes. It's pretty exciting. Yes. I screwed up, though. So he had volleyball tryouts before school. So he and I were the only two up yesterday morning when yeah. I took him to school because it was an hour before, hour and a half before school started or whatever. and uh, Yeah, their school so starts you weren't so up, late they can have yeah. stuff in the morning before school. But you and weren't then, up to remind me, and I totally forgot. <laughs> I forgot to wish him happy birthday. I totally, and it wasn't even like like I had totally spaced it. Like the night before, we, we talked, talked about his birthday. So I knew it was his birthday. I just... So then I drop him off and I come home and I don't know what made me think of it. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm such a jerk. Made me feel terrible. We had a fun celebration. Got some steaks. Mm-hmm. You uh, did a great job with presents. If if I was a single dad, I swear to God, I would just like I would forget things like this, and then we would just go to like Shotgun Willie's for a T-bone, and that would be the celebration. Because I I am just terrible about remembering, and I hate buying gifts. But you did a great job. Thanks. Fourteen's a tough age. He doesn't want toys. Too old for toys, and he right. can't drive. Well, not that we'd give him a car anyway, but, you know, maybe yeah. you'd give him a car-related thing, like a, I don't know, a snow brush or something. <laughs> Happy birthday. Here's a, here's your, a tire Your birthday's gauge. in February. Here's a, here's a snow brush. Yeah. You could have probably used some, it the earlier three months. Some new floor mats. Maybe this will be exciting <laughs> for you. But no. WeatherTech liners. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. I don't know how that company survives. Hey. Um, I think they look pretty awesome. They do, but... They advertise during like NFL games. Like those are expensive slots. Well, and they're, they're selling expensive cup holders. Mats. Or they're selling phone cup holders. Like they're come expensive. on. How does that math work? Um But yeah, so I'm glad that you uh you were good to go and uh got him a hardcover version of Harry Potter. Which yeah. he was so excited about. Like I know he loves Harry Potter, but he's read all the books nineteen times, <laughs> but like so this is a collector's item. That's the idea? He's yeah. He's starting his own Harry Potter library? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, his sister had some pretty beat up ones. His sister's the oldest of the bunch. So the bookends have a very beat up collection. But he reads them just when he's bored because he does not, we do not give him permission just to browse on his phone. So he turns... Because there have been some issues yes. with that. Yeah. And um, he just really loves reading. 
and loves to reread things I think there is a comfort in. And a lot of, you know, I had a lot of books that I read over and over as a kid. Yeah. We were talking about it yesterday with some of my coworkers about how there are some books, you know, and, and maybe he'll grow out of them, but then this will build a collection and he can have in his library. Well, I'm just thankful to be married to you because you were on top of it as usual. Uh, you know, Wednesday or what was it? Thursday birthday in the middle of winter. Good gravy. There's no chance I'm going to step up to the plate and be a, your parents didn't. So, uh, <laughs> they so didn't remember. Uh, but... <laughs> it's hard. Cause it's right after Valentine's day and you've got that. You're kind of thinking about. Yeah. He know? was a February 15th. I remember you squeezing your legs together because uh, <laughs> you didn't want to have a baby on Valentine's day so hard. He was just early. So that's why I didn't want to have him. <laughs> What? He was about a week and a oh, half early. Yeah, but you had but late yeah. as it relates to Valentine's Day, but yeah. early as it relates to his due date. Well, anyway, great job with the birthday. Well done. So uh, we've got this uh, this survey that we're going to release here shortly, and it's it's like a legit thing. It's like a real research project, it, like with a university that we're working with, and. Um, you know, shortly we're going to have like the official launch and the official script that we will have to read to do the promotion. Um, but so just kind of leading up, I want to get people excited about it. It's it's a survey about intimacy and alcoholic relationships. And the, the benefit for our listeners to taking this survey, this is partners' perceptions of, so... Uh, the, what we're looking for is the loved ones, the spouses of the alcoholics to take this survey. And the benefits, the benefit to you as a survey taker is, you know, you feel so alone and so isolated in all this stuff that you experience being married to an alcoholic. And then maybe you find this podcast, you find maybe the, the couple other p- podcasts out there that are discussing this. Maybe you find a support group. You find a few people that are talking about it and you realize you're not alone. This is a there a lot of the issues that you experience are very universal. And so uh we're delving into, you know, a territory that we have spent some time talking about, but um we're really trying to get feedback from people in a way that's different than what we have done in the past. And so if you participate in the survey, you might be thinking, what's in it for me? Well, nothing. We're gonna pay everyone a thousand dollars who takes this. <laughs> No, we're not. We're not going to pay you anything. But everyone who takes the survey, we will, uh, you know, accumulate the data. First of all, it's all going to be de-identified to begin with. No one will give their name or any identifying characteristics. So we won't know who anyone is who takes the survey. So it's not even like we have to hide your identity. You won't give us your identity to begin with. But we will take the accumulated data and we will share it with the people who have taken the survey. Now, eventually... Like I said, this is like a real official, you know, educational institution thing. Eventually, the uh, my understanding is that we will publish papers in medical journals or something like that. And so we will uh, publish, you know, the findings in specific categories from the survey. But if you want all the data, if you want to know how your experience compares to the experience of others in alcoholic relationships, um, if you take this survey... We will uh, share that data with all of the, the study participants 
um, like I said, in like an accumulated way. So you can say, hey, did I, was my experience like 80% of the people or was my experience like 20% of the people? Like, what, what is this like? How, how normal is what I've been through? And so uh, more coming on that, but uh, we really, really would appreciate your participation. It, it really means a lot to the work that we do and the, the future of the work that we do. And, but also I think there's something in it for you. So this isn't like when I just asked you to buy our book for a dollar and just suck it up and do it. You're actually going to get something out of it. So I have a question. Yes. What do you want to explain to our listeners? Like why this came about? Um, like it can be a short answer. I know you're not great with those. Well, but... I just, <laughs> thank you. So in our, our groups, our echoes of recovery group, our shout sobriety group, our marriage evolution group, um, we have a lot of awesome people, great intelligent people. We have great conversations about many, many topics. Um, usually the, the, it's actually gotten better recently to be honest, but for a long time, the conversations got really quiet when we started talking about topics around intimacy, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, sexual satisfaction, all things that I believe. And I know now you believe as well are key components to a successful relationship and a successful (laughs) recovery from alcoholism. And so, whereas people were, you know, we live in a great age where people are willing to talk about alcoholism and addiction and other uh, maladaptive coping mechanisms, but the bedroom stuff is still pretty hard for people to talk about. And so, um, this came about because I'm uh, I'm in school for this. I'm in, I'm in school and part of being in school is uh, this, you know, I... I Rather than taking another course, um, I replaced a couple of courses with doing a project with a professor. So, well, I was. Is that the answer you're looking for? No, um, I was just gonna say, like, because when we were trying to find resolutions for some of our issues, uh huh. <coughs> pardon me, but this. Yeah, you're uh, you're fighting, you're battling. This isn't just you. You get the coughs when you've been crying, but this is different. Yeah, this is. Hurdy cough. Actually sick. Um, when we were struggling with a lot of this, we just couldn't find a lot of information. And what we've learned is there isn't. There's a lot of information about <coughs> sex and intimacy, and then there's a lot of re- information about addiction. But there isn't a crossover. That's right. And so you're trying to cross connect these two to hopefully gain attention that there's a lot of damage that is done in the relationship. I mean, whether it be, you know, any kind of addiction in that crossover, there's very few segments of the population out there that really have information and helpful information for real life circumstances. That's right. You know. Yeah, there's a woman named... Sorry. I'm just like, There's a woman named Lindsay Rodriguez. I, I don't know her. I've just read. She's published a bunch of papers in medical journals. And she's done a lot of work on what she calls marital distress in alcoholic relationships. But that's where she kind of stops. And so that's it. You're exactly right. She doesn't go deeper. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is take her work and say, all right, she, she, she made us all believe that there's marital distress in alcoholic relationships. Got it. What is marital distress? Let's define that a little more in a little more detail. And so we're just building off the work of somebody else. So, yeah, so that's the plan. More to come on that. Uh, and we hope a lot of our listeners will be eager to take the survey. 
I'm a mess over here, Matt. My chair is squeaking. I know. I'm coughing all the time. That's okay. We're we're glad you're a Gen <laughs> Xer. You showed you're up like, anyway. Yeah, you're calling in sick. Only <laughs> wear your pajamas, you're like, but drag your ass in here. We gotta talk. <laughs> you're probably like, why did I ask her to do the podcast right now? Well, I know for sure you people don't want to just well. listen to me talk. So, <laughs> uh, we're glad you're here. So, uh, yeah, we've gotten a lot of listener questions recently. We hope that you guys will keep sending those in. If you would like us to address your question about your situation, please send an email to matt at soberandunashamed.com. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to work your listener question into an episode. For today, our listener question is... (coughs) Boy, we are the epitome of health. This is going to be fun to listen to. You know, there are tools to edit all this out, but that is unlikely to happen. Um, Today's listener question. My husband would prefer to blame me rather than the alcohol for the collapse of our marriage. I've tried to make alcohol the villain of the story, but that disrupts the narrative that he's very invested in. Mm. The narrative that I am the primary villain. What is your observation of how often it is possible for the drinker to truly embrace their partner's side of the story? To me, that seems rare. Is there a common thread in the relationships where the alcoholic can really hear what their partner is saying? What a great question. Wow. Well, and I just feel for her being the, you know, physical, tangible reason when... He must still be so in love with alcohol that there's no way that could have ever been alcohol's fault. Well, I just I, find that so. I will tell you, like with a lot of listener questions, in addition to the actual question, there was a write-up. You know, there was yeah. So there is more detail here, and this person, their spouse, has been sober for um, a good bit of time now. Wow. But but still holding a lot of angst toward her, and you know we hear that a lot. We hear. Fine, I'll get sober, but you got to address your side of the street. Yeah. You got to clean up all your problems, and so it's not—it's not at all uncommon. Um, but but it is—it is unfortunate. And yeah, sadly. So obviously, there is much in the way of recovery for this person. Um, if they're still blaming another person and not hoping to see the effects that alcohol had on both of them and the relationship, and laying that blame on alcohol. Yeah, I mean... Clearly, that, to me, seems like such an easy thing to do. Yeah. And then, uh, but, you know, well, obviously you gotta... no, no, you know, not listening to the other side. And if they are in recovery, it's, maybe it's a group that's very, you know, angry. And other people made me quit drinking and, you know, yeah. sort of thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's just it. I, I think it... it whether you know you, you can certainly get yourself involved in a group with a group of people in recovery who um you know they draw the line at you got to not drink you got to not lift the glass to your lips you know we hear that a lot that's your, that's your job do whatever that takes and i get that that's that's solid advice but it doesn't dig into the underlying issues very much and and certainly there are lots of programs out there that don't really delve into relationship issues at all and so um if you are proud of your sobriety and 
you recognize that it's the right decision, but um, you don't take that added step, like you said, of blaming the alcohol for the relationship struggles and you're angry, then it it it's not at all uncommon to continue to blame the the spouse. Yeah. I mean, there, I definitely went through a stage. I mean, just a reminder to our listeners, it took me 10 years to get officially sober and there were periods of sobriety during that 10 years when I would say, I'm just doing this for you. And, um, you know, I often talked about how, uh, you know, fine, I'll quit, but I don't think that's what our problem is. Or I won't quit and I don't think alcohol is what our problem is. And so um, it's, I think, not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Sad that they haven't expanded the, that the now sober person hasn't expanded their recovery to other things. I mean, even if you were just to read about secondhand drinking, yeah, you know, like that was, that was something we were reading before you even like had sobriety, permanent sobriety under your belt this time. And you know, that was just shocking to think, Oh, you go into work hungover. How does this affect everybody in your office? Yeah. You know, or you're still drunk in the morning. How does this affect everybody in your office? How does it affect your kids going to school the next day? Like, it's a shame that even just that little tidbit of information hasn't snuck in somewhere because I think that would change your perspective on it. And then you would start to understand the collateral damage that the alcohol has done, not just to blame their partner. There are very few, um, you know, secrets or just misunderstandings that are as prevalent um, and deeply ingrained and just frustrating to me now as the lack of understanding of the impact of our drinking on the people around us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, and, and it's not even the awful times. It's not even the screaming and the yelling and the the name calling and the break and shit. It's not even that. It's the, it's the, um, you know, uh, you never know what to expect from me. So you're going to walk on eggshells. You're tense. You make the kids tense. Um, my decisions might be, even when I'm not drunk, even if I've just had a beer or two, my decisions might be abrupt and my discipline of the kids might be abrupt. And that just causes tension for everybody. And it's an uncomfortable, unsafe environment to live in and grow up in. And we drinkers don't see that. Yeah. When we get sober, we want to talk about the big blow up times and maybe if we're apologizers like I am, we want to apologize for that. We want to, we want to pick, I remember one point I picked out five instances that were awful in my 25 years of drinking. Let's talk about these five instances. And we did, and it was awful. And then I felt like, all right, there, we did it. Everything's fine now. my job. Well, I mean, it's just even to simple things like, oh, it's your child's 10th birthday. They get to choose where they want to go for their birthday lunch. Maybe it's a hot dog cart that doesn't sell beer. Probably that doesn't happen at all now. Um, but you would be like, but they don't have, they don't have a liquor license. They, no, we're going to go somewhere. So then you are ultimately choosing for us. Yeah. Choosing for them. No, it's got to be these three places. It can't be exactly what the child wants. So it's just that selfishness and that dominance that alcohol is always dominating every aspect of your life. Yep. 
can't stay. And, like, we used to go to a church that started later. And, like, we couldn't stay and hang out because you wanted to get home because it was your Sunday afternoon and you wanted to start drinking. Yeah. So we didn't hang out and socialize with some of the other families. Or if we did, it was for, like, 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. Because we were getting home afternoon and that was your window of opportunity to drink on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this, in the case of this listener question, I think the the former drinker probably doesn't recognize, um, you know, the impact that alcohol had on just the functioning of the family. It doesn't even have to necessarily be, like I said, arguments and screaming and yelling. It's just how the family functions doesn't mm-hmm. feel right. And uh, that leaves a lasting impact. I want to focus on the last part of her question, though. Is there a common thread in the relationship where the alcoholic can really hear what their partner is saying? So in the cases where the alcoholic can do resentment processing, (coughs) pardon, (coughs) pardon me, can do resentment processing, can hear about the traumatic experiences without being re-traumatized, can acknowledge, because you've said this many times, it's not about me apologizing again. It's about me acknowledging, okay, thank you for sharing your experience. I now understand what you went through. Mm-hmm. And not being defensive. Oh, it wasn't as bad as you say it is. You might remember it that way, but I didn't have as much to drink as you think I did. Yeah. And oh, don't you remember, you were already in a bad mood because, you know... Um, your cat pooped on the carpet and it wasn't really the drinking you already, you know, instead of me getting defensive, just acknowledging, wow, that sucks. That must've been really hard. And so, um, that when, when she says, is there a common thread in the relationship where the alcoholic can really hear what their partner is saying? That's what she's talking about. Acknowledging the pain and the, and the tough experiences. And so I thought about some common threads. I think one of them is, is just curiosity. Drinkers in recovery who get to the point where they're working their way past the shame. The shame cycle is so hard and it's like quicksand pulling you back in. But they're working their way through the shame and they're getting to a point of curiosity about the experiences of the people around them. And they can ask and sincerely want to hear um, without defensiveness and without just that throwing them back down into the shame cycle. They really, really want to know what, what did this do to you? Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things I wrote down. I also think that um, there has to be enough pain to be open to alternative narratives. So how long is this guy going to sit there and blame his wife for the, you know, the the disruption to the marriage, the crumbling of the marriage? How long is he going to sit there and just just be like, oh, it, you know, it's it's all you, you, you? Eventually. I mean, that's got to be painful. Mm-hmm. So eventually you've got to be open to alternative narratives. And then the third thing I, I put down is just group work. I can't tell you how much it has done for me to be a part of our Echoes of Recovery group, which is for the loved ones of alcoholics, to listen to so many people in that group talk about their experiences with their alcoholic. It has made me have so much empathy for you, Sherry, my wife. Because... Now I don't just hear you say it, but I hear lots of women say the same things that you've said. I've said I think to myself, "Oh, Sherry's not crazy. This is really how it feels." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously we don't offer for alcoholics to join our Echoes of Recovery group. That is a safe place for the loved ones. 
But we have our Shout Sobriety group. We have our Marriage Evolution group where couples are working on reconciliation together. And I got to tell you, I look at the faces of the folks that are joining us and growing with us and learning with us. And I see light bulbs go off all the time. They're like, oh, and they say exactly what I just said. Oh, you know, I didn't, re- I, I thought that was just my wife who said mm-hmm. things like that. Oh, your wife says it too, and yours too, and yours too, and yours too. Oh my God. This must be actually how they feel. This must be the impact it's ha- having on them. So I think, I think there is a rareness. I mean, this, this woman, she's in pain and she's asking a valid question. You know, what is the common thread? In relationships where the alcoholic can really hear what's going on. I think there is a little bit of a... It's not a unicorn type thing, but you have to be willing to set aside your preconceived notions and set aside your defensiveness and say, okay, I really want to know. I really want to know. Well, and it's... uh, I think there's a ego that plays into it through shame, and then that's not allowing you to have any sort of compassion for another person's... um, lived experiences yeah ego is a good point you know i don't think that ego is necessarily a bad thing we use it nowadays as like kind of a negative thing but i think that ego it comes from self-protection and shame and once like you said working down that shame i also like wonder how much you know it also could be like this would be part of the work of recovery like how did this person grow up was there compassion? Was there understanding? Was there, or just barking orders and telling people what to do growing up? You know, breaking that cycle and coming out and like re-parenting yourself as an adult. Like oh, that's, that's all the stuff that has to come out in the work of recovery. And it's not just about not putting the drink to your lips. I mean, that's part of it, but it's understanding why you have chosen to self-medicate. Yeah, that's good. Because I think that there are a lot of people that just don't have an example of compassion that they grow up with. So that it's not that they can't love, but they just don't seem to care about the other person's side of things. Or there's just a narrative, right? Like, I know what I'm supposed to do as the husband. I'm supposed to provide and protect. And, you know, obviously we don't recognize the unsafe environment we're creating internally with our drinking and our gaslighting and our um, inconsistency, but that's a big, important lesson to learn. But beyond that, it's, you know, I'm, I I have this role, it's the same role my father had, and so I'm going to live out this role, and there's just not a lot of room for curiosity in that role, right? I saw it, I know what it looks like, so I'm just going to do it that way. Well, that doesn't long-term go very well. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we meet a lot of people that when, you know, when when we first meet them, I really feel like they want to kill me, the guys. <laughs> hurt you, not kill you, perhaps. Well, you might think hurt. I'm worried that they want to kill me. But but then, you know, we there's like a hump we have to get over. And we have to recognize, oh, um, these people have been through the same experience I've been through. What do they know that I don't know? Maybe Maybe there's something to be learned here. And so that curiosity... Is huge. If you're just set in your way, if you're determined, listen, if you're determined that your wife's a bitch and she's the reason the relationship isn't getting back together and that, yeah, sobriety was a good idea, but alcohol was not the, the core problem in the relationship. If you're convinced of that and you're not, you're not interested in learning, then I don't know what, I don't know what to do for you. I don't know what, you know, what progress can be made. Yeah. 
Yeah. So tough situation. Thank you very much for sharing that, listener. Um, I know that's a very relatable, relatable situation. I know there are people that are still in relationships um, that have that dynamic, and I know there are people that have separated or divorced, and that's still the attitude of the former drinker. And uh, it's tough. It's tough for sure. So, Sherry, something has come to my attention that's different than our experience, which makes it a little awkward because I want to talk about something that's different than our experience. But I want to get your take on it. Like, I want to, I want to understand why this didn't work out this way for us. I, I have a question. Is there a threshold that gets crossed where decision making, especially about the kids, becomes unilateral? Uh, the 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 spouse the sober the not alcoholic partner starts making all the decisions and just no longer has any interest in hearing what the the drinker has to say and then that can continue into sobriety I've like learned about that a little bit recently and I'm mm-hmm. pretty curious because that did not, that never happened with us I mean I'm sure there were times when I was drunk that you didn't consult me on anything. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not like we had a Gestapo-like relationship where everything you wanted to do, you had to run by me. But, you know, any big decisions we've made together, even during my act of alcoholism. Yeah, because I think that you were not... You were not checked out as much as some of the people that we um, encounter. Like, we have people in our Echoes of Recovery group that have high-functioning alcoholics... But they're only good until like five o'clock, you know, and then that's when drinking comes in and then hands off. And because they drink every day, it does not take their body any time to catch up to that chasing that last buzz. You were not like that. There were lots of times where I didn't really value or respect your opinion because I felt like, you know, there were times where I thought, well, you can't even keep yourself sober, so why do I want to include you in on this? But you're right, I don't think we ever experienced that simply because I don't think you went down that far on a regular basis. And you were in charge of the kids a couple of times a week um, while I worked at our bakery. And there were times that I had come home and I was really disappointed about what I saw on a Friday evening at 7 or 7.30, but um, they were never in danger. And when you say that, because I fed them cereal for dinner and I was watching cable news and drinking vodka. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like they were locked in a closet. Exactly. And... It's not like they were being harmed. I just felt like you weren't emotionally connecting with them because I knew you did work from home a little bit, you know, during the nap time, especially, You know, but I also know that you had probably walked them over to the park, you know, uh, or did something fun with them. Or like our youngest, who we were talking about at the top of the podcast, he used to go to do errands and shopping with you. And he always thought that was so much fun to go into the freezer part, you know, of the... But there were never times where I felt like you were totally checked out and neglecting them. Just absolute neglect. Um, on occasion, I felt like there was one that I felt like was a neglect, and that was one of those, probably one of those five top ten or five times that you wanted to 
talk about because it was a really, really bad situation. Um, but as far as them being harmed in physical harm and in physical danger, no. And you didn't do that often enough that I could link those together and really disqualify you as a parent. Disqualify me as a parent. That's a good way to, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. When I hear you talk about this, the, the big thing that comes to mind for me is when there was a big parenting decision to be made and it was something that you were aware of and I was not, you definitely would pick or choose your time to bring it to me. Mm -hmm. I hesitate to use the example that's at the top of my mind because you teased me about, you said it's the example I always use, but like... Orthodontics. Yeah. (laughs) Braces for the kids or... I mean, hell, we're all... We got lots of little maladies. There were glasses. There were um, contacts. There were hearing aids. Um, No shortage of stuff. But, or, you know, even like, hey, they want to do this... Summer camp, or they want to, you know, play this sport, or, or yeah, like one time whatever. I can think of that's kind of silly, but our daughter, after school at her elementary school, there was a dance class that had always been around the thriller dance class. Well, it's Miss Mickey's dance, yeah, and so she had had lots of friends that did that, but she always did soccer, and we did it through the parks and rec, and it was pretty much. Like, it would interrupt. Like, it wouldn't... Dance class wouldn't end in time to go to that. Also, it was just another fee, you know? Well, I think in her fourth and fifth grade year, like, because the rec center didn't start, like, her age group until, like, six, she could do this. Yeah. You know? But then I was, like, I had to, like, oh, my God, like, approach you about, like, well, here's another... You know, and this is going to be like a drop in a bucket for what a lot of people pay. But for a one day a week after school activity, that's an hour. It was like a hundred dollars a month or something. And I was like, I have to talk to him about it. But she really wanted to do it. So you did kind of get your panties in a bunch a little bit. You're like, well, she's going to be too tired for soccer because you were coaching her, I'm sure, because you've never not been her coach pretty much um, for soccer. So I'm sure you were a little like, oh, she's going to be too tired. And I was like, no, she's going to, you know, she really wants to do it. And she didn't want to be anywhere in the house when we discussed this. That's so, that's so uh, devastating to hear. I'm sorry. No, I mean, it's true and I need to hear it, but that breaks my heart. Because she loved that dance class. I mean, so she did it and it was great. Yeah. And I called it the Thriller Dance Class because every Halloween... They did. They danced to Thriller. Yes. Miss Mickey loved Thriller. And then in the spring, we did Girls Want to Have Fun, and it was a mother-daughter dance. So. Yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, but she was just so nervous about your reaction. Yeah. Again, it goes back to that listener question. This person has no idea how their alcohol affects everything yeah. and the tra- and in the relationship and, and family. And so that was just mood. That and was that was just, just mood. Yeah. Also, it was going to be on a, and it was going to be on a Friday. So she was already probably like thinking, oh my gosh, because you did have, I mean, it was either Thursday or Friday. And I think that she probably already knew, well, that was one of those nights that dad drank. So now he's having soccer later and it's going to keep him from drinking. So he's like, we all knew that you were going to be more anxious. Yeah. Having later soccer. Except you were really good when you did, but then I would see when you did have soccer and you had something that was, something that you loved 
coaching soccer, you did not worry about the alcohol when it was coming. Because yeah. I don't necessarily think you were physically addicted as well. So you didn't have to start your mornings with it. No. And I think that's where and how and why we never got to this decision where I didn't include you in the stuff. But I, I am glad you tied it back to the listener question because all of my memories of that dance class are positive. You and I giggling about, oh my God, if we have to hear the song Thriller again, we're going to like... Because they rotated the lines forward, so they would do it three well, times. Yeah. To, yeah, it was fun and it was great. Yeah. yeah, but, and also just how much Catherine loved it. And I remember, you're right, it, it was a day when I would be in charge of pickup because I'd be there for the end of the dance class, watching them for a few minutes and talking with the other parents. And to me, it was all upside. And the fact that you remember the tension and the nervousness and the eggshells and all of that, is a great example of what we alcoholics, we don't even experience that. We cause it and don't even realize it's happening. Yeah. But, okay, so so that would be an example of something that you would, ah, it's going to be, you know, another fee. I got to talk to them. And so we've got to find, pick and choose our time. You had to pick and choose your time to have the conversation, but I was never cut out of the conversation. Right. I think that if you had given any argument for not choosing it, I would have went to bat for it, for sure, for her. And there could have been tension between you and I. And I think that's what our daughter was thinking would happen. Sure. So that's why she didn't want to be in the house, because she didn't want to have to experience an argument. Because she knew, because I told her, I said, you will, you will do this. Yeah. Good mama bear. Love to hear that. So yeah, so you never cut me out. So I, I want to ask you some questions, but I also want to... Go ahead and make it clear to our listeners. I would love to hear from our listeners. I would love for them to either email us, matt at soberandunashamed.com, or even better, I'd love it if you posted a comment in, on our website, our Intoxicated <laughs> Podcast website, where these, uh, you know, the original place that the episodes are published, certainly people listen on Spotify or Google Podcasts, mm-hmm. which is going away, or Apple or whatever, but... Um, but we actually do have a website where people can post comments. But one way or the other, I would love to have people reach out with answers um, about this. So what is different between our situation and situations where uh, the loved one, the spouse, is completely cutting the alcoholic out from parental decision-making? Do you think, Sherry, that it has anything to do with the lying and the hiding. In our case, as we've said many times, I hid how much I drank. Occasionally. For a while, for a couple, three years, we had a kegerator, mm-hmm. a refrigerator with a keg of beer in it, a full-size keg of beer in it. No pony with a tap. that. <laughs> yeah. With a tap, and I, there was no way to count how much, even when I, I know there was no way to count, because even when I was trying to count, sometimes I couldn't count. Um, but I would just go, and every time I would walk past it, I would refill my cup, whether it was half empty or empty or whatever. Um, and there was definitely no way for you to keep track of how much I was drinking. So there were certainly some times when, you know, you might have said, how much have you had to drink? And I would say, oh, I've only had a couple. And really, I had had six or eight or ten mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. because, again, kegerator. Um but other times, you know, we only had that for a few years. Other times, um, when I, you know, uh, one of my more 
elegant and uh, just classy moves, I would be drinking beer, but as I would walk past the liquor cabinet, I would just open a vodka bottle and take a swig of warm vodka or your favorite, warm gin oh, yeah. uh, on occasion. So, yeah, I've only had four beers, which now I look at it and I'm like, only? You call that only? But yes, I've only had four beers, but I also took six swigs of vodka as I was walking yeah. through the kitchen. Well, and you were not our particularly uh, sober-looking drunk, so you, your face gave it all away and your well, actions. But everyone we meet says that. They say it's either your face or but your, how your people... eyes or your footfalls as you walk across the, door, the floor. Or my favorite, I could tell by the way you twisted the doorknob coming in the door whether okay. you were drunk or not. We hear that a lot. Well, there's got to be enough, like the hiding and the lying and the hiding drinking and staying away from the family, like you said. Because we have a lot of people, too, that were like, I had no idea my husband or partner That's fair. We was that too. drinking. Yeah. So there must be some people that can hide it. In fact, like, I mean, sometimes when I would, we would, like, be away from the kids or we would go out. And one time, even before kids, we went on a vacation. You had no idea that I was intoxicated as much as I was because... I don't remember what you were telling me. And it was one of those reverse situations that only happened in a very rare time. And um, Was it the Boston Marathon? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. how rare they are. Yeah. I think they're as rare as one, and I remember. <laughs> that was in 2000. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was one of those rare times. You yeah, had no time, idea. Your time in the race was really bad the next day. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. Um but you had no idea that I had been that intoxicated. So yeah. there are some people that can hold it together. But yeah, that hiding and lighting, lying and hiding, of course, like you're not going to let them have any opportunity to drive the children anywhere once you start to learn how bad it is. Okay, so we're making the differentiation between the kind of lying I did, which I'm not excusing, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm better than anybody else. Like you said, I never thought I could get away with flat out lying and saying, no, I have not been drinking alcohol when I had been. Yeah. The only thing I could think I could get away with, thought I could get away was with the number. Was, yeah, I've had a couple when really I've had six. Yeah. But because there are people also... that flat out say, no, I have not, you know, I haven't had a drink in a week. And, you know, they clearly have been drinking that day. Yeah. So, I, my, so what my gut kind of question is, and I'm wondering, and it sounds like you have some thoughts on it as well. That kind of lying, that bold face, I'm denying the truth that you see with your eyes, that kind of lying, is that what puts you over the threshold and say, you have no decision-making responsibilities with the kids anymore? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that would be one of those, like, no-brainers, you know. Like, so that, if I had done that, that would have been it for you? Well, I mean, it would definitely push me in the direction of of questioning everything you do and your motive behind it. So that would be a start, you know, because there are times where you have admittedly drank and then drove the kids. But if it's, if you were hiding all of this, you Let, know. Let's be, okay, let's dive into that a little bit. Growing up, when my family went to a neighborhood barbecue or whatever, or went out to eat, my dad always drank. 100% of the time, and my dad drove us home 100% of the time. Uh-huh. And so, uh, and 
I would say, was not drunk probably 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. I can only think of kind of like the Boston Marathon. I can only think of a couple of experiences where I was like, ooh, I don't think this is a good idea. Why isn't mom driving? So I grew up in that very, very patriarchal, you know, um, in that kind of environment. And so uh, the idea of drinking and driving was as normal as breathing air to me. And that, and I'm sure that is disgusting some people to hear that. But the idea of having a couple of beers and going to Ace Hardware to get the tool you need for the project you're working on, I would not have given that a second thought. Right. So there were many times where I drove the kids after I had been drinking. But that's different than driving the kids. Like drunk, drunk. Yeah. Now, now, where I am now, I think, why would you ever drive with anything in your system? Yeah. Especially, there were many times when I drove when you were there and you hadn't had anything to drink. Like, that's, that's just insanity to me now but at the time that was very normalized but I didn't drive with the kids where you were terrified because I was shit-faced very often I'm not saying I never did there were definitely times I remember once coming home from something all of us together you should have driven you tried I was an asshole and I remember I turned one street before our street so here we are coming home, and I can't even hit the right street to pull into. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it happened, but so that's kind of a differentiator too, right? Yeah, if I had driven with the kids a lot, really drunk, you would have cut me off. Yeah, that would be those sort of things where I was like, "You are not having the safety in the best interest of our family." Yeah, you are no longer, you know, allowed to drive them any. Where yeah. you know I could see that happening, and I could see how the, I can see how it all it adds up. It's not something that happens in an instant where you're cutting off the the alcoholic partner or the addicted partner in parenting decisions. It is compounded by actions over and over and over and over, and behaviors from the drinker over and over and over again. You know. What about this one? I wrote down in my notes, is one of the reasons that you never cut me off from parental decision making, because I would have gone absolute apeshit had you. Yes. Also. So my personality. Your personality. Drunk or sober. Yes. Plays into it, right? Yes. That's why going back to the dance class that our daughter wanted to do, it was picking and choosing the right time. Right. To have a discussion with you about it. Now, there were times where... You know, we were, you did all your drinking at home for the most part or at a neighbor's house. Like you like to stay close to home and drink. Like you didn't have a big active social life. So that was pretty easy to manage the drinking and driving and that sort of, that sort of stuff. So, but when it came to like choosing the times that I wanted to have discussions with you about things, whether I felt like it warranted a discussion or not. Um, you know, but also I think if we would have cut you out completely because it's so unstable in the house, I don't know, would you have been, sometimes you would have been like, oh, okay, thanks for making that decision. Or the next time it'd be like, why wasn't I involved in this? I am a parent too. I can have a right to, you know, to just have a discussion about this. So it was that 
instability and walking on eggshells and not knowing what your reaction is going to be or how dedicated you feel to it. I can't think of a good example like right now where you wanted to be involved in the decision, but I'm sure there were many times where it was something small, you know, where you wanted to be involved in the decision making. Yeah. I mean, I felt like you made decisions occasionally without me and I got my my feelings hurt about it, but I never felt like I was being cut off. Mm-hmm. I felt like, hey, uh, we should have talked about that. You know, like that that isn't that isn't minor. That we should have talked about that. Um, and I'm sure, and I can't think of an example either. But it was never. I never thought, oh, she has decided she's the parent in charge. I never felt like that. You never made me feel like I was like my opinion wasn't valued. Um, even in areas where we, you know, uh, we disagreed, we have talked about like I'm a big proponent that our kids need to get their own ass to school. Like that's part of growing up is figuring out how to navigate the one mile walk in the snow and, when they're older and can go on their yeah. own. Let's we oh, don't yeah. send our first grader out. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. But. <laughs> yeah. Even in areas where we have difference of, of opinion, I always felt like my opinion was valued by you or tolerated by you. Let's put it that way. Tolerated. Maybe not. I didn't always feel like my opinion was valued, but I, I, I never felt like you were like, mm, give a shit what he thinks. We're doing it this way. Even though I would sometimes think that. but Sure. Uh, yeah. And but I, often I'm it was, sure I did It was too. very strategic in planting seeds and then also... Which is sad, but that you had to be strategic. Yeah, and planting seeds, and then sometimes, then it would be your idea, you know, after all was said and done. And I'd be like, oh, well, what a brilliant idea, Matt. Thank you. Water it, fertilize it, (laughs) let it become his idea. Yeah. I mean, it's gross and disgusting that that's how it has to be. But obviously it's nothing that we have any true examples of, but but I can think of. Here's another one. Is it a grasp for control? You've been in an alcoholic relationship as the loved one, Sherry. Things get out of control. Um, There are so many uh, dangerous situations, so much lack of safety, lack of consistency, and you're on the eggshells and you're wondering what's going to happen next and you don't know if I'm going to drink and get in a good mood or I'm going to drink and get grumpy or I'm going to drink and start yelling. You've talked many times about how often I would start, I would shift right in front of y'all's eyes. I would be drinking and laughing and joking with the kids and we'd listen to music and we'd dance around and then all of a sudden, it's over, time for bed, brush your teeth. And so you'd have to witness that. So, so much uncertainty for you. Do you think that some of the, the, the loved ones, the spouses who make unilateral parenting decisions do it because it's something they can control when there's so many things in their life <laughs> that are outside of their control. Perhaps, but I don't know if it's an intentional control. It's just about the safety yeah, and controlling that situation. Like you are not gonna, it is not, you're not going to bring the whole ship down. You can bring yourself down, but you're not bringing them down with you. So I don't, necessarily think it's a control thing like there are situations where under that many many thousands of words as and I'm exaggerating of a description of being codependent is you know controlling the situation 
I think that is just that protectiveness and safety and this is the line you've crossed and you've lost it. You've lost my respect. You've lost their respect. You've lost my trust. There is no safety. You are done. Again, I don't think it's a control thing in that regard. I think it's a total like control out of safety. Has a different motivator. I, I mean, personally, I just don't see... I don't see the vindictiveness, because it sounds like there's a vindictiveness behind it when you say mm. controlling unilaterally and taking away parenting rights. I don't think that it's the vindictiveness. I think it's the protection and the safety and the lack of stability that gets you to that point. This is so interesting to me. You've really surprised me because I did not expect you to have such strong opinions about something that we didn't experience, a threshold that we didn't cross. But clearly, you, like, there were red lines that I just never crossed. And had I, you were prepared to act in these ways, much the same as some of the the spouses that, you know, that we we hear stories, you know, that we... We hear about their experiences much much in the same way that they have been forced to act. Well, I mean, this is going to make me tear up. It's not like I thought you were a bad dad. I just thought there were times where I fantasized that you were not around. Or like if you had to go out of a town on a rare occasion because owning your own business, you didn't. Um, Like it was so much calmer in the house. Yeah. And, you know... It, we drove you to the airport to go to one of your grandparents' funerals really early in the morning. And we stopped at like an Einstein bagel and got fresh hot bagels. And we just sat in the kitchen on the counters just watching a stupid like finding Bigfoot. Because our middle son was really into Bigfoot at that time. And we all just laughed and had so much fun. And I thought this was like a Saturday morning or something. Or maybe it was a Friday morning and the kids were out of school for some random weird thing. But I was like, this would never happen. But in my house, this would happen. Yeah. In my house, where I was the parent, we would do this more often. Yeah. We would have more of these funny, spontaneous things. Yeah. Whereas you would have thought it was wasteful money, it wasn't healthy food, watching TV in the morning like that wasn't part of their schedule, you know... All of that. What a peach. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think what I'm hearing is your way um, would have been better. Would have been better <coughs> not just for you, but for the kids and for the whole family environment. And so you probably did think about this more than I realized. But what I would really like to hear from our listeners, um, so we talked about some specific things that, you know, had I crossed these lines, would they have or would they not have kind of put, put you, Sherry, into unilateral um, decision-making mode as it relates to the kids and the lying and <coughs> hiding alcohol is one that you said, yes, that would have, um, one of the reasons that you didn't cross that line is because you know I would have gone ape shit, so that was something more for you to to deal with. Um, you think consistent drunk driving would have been an absolute no-go. That would have 
um, made you making all the decisions and not trusting the, me with the kids. Or just, you know, yeah. Like... But not, but the one you pushed back on was the, is it a grasp for control? And I'd love to hear from our listeners, like, what do you think? Can you, can you do that? Can you either post a comment on our website, the Untoxicated Podcast website, or... Or can you just send me an email? Um, and I don't know what we'll do with this. Maybe Sherry and I will just talk about it. Maybe we'll have a follow-up episode. Um, this is a tough subject to assemble a roundtable about for a variety of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is this is a phenomenon that really I'm hearing about from the alcoholics themselves who have been cut out. And if I have a bunch of alcoholics on... Uh, sober, sober alcoholics, guys in recovery, guys doing the right thing, Wait. and and let them address this. It's just going to sound like they're whining. It, they're, so I just know I don't want to put them in the situation of making them sound like they're in victim mode, and that will not be a sympathetic. You know, the audience will not be sympathetic to that, honestly. So I don't want to put those guys in a bad situation and do a roundtable with with that you know environment. So I, I really want to hear from listeners. Um, yeah. Whether you're the alcoholic or maybe you're one of the spouses who you, you got to a point where you said, that's it. I'm making all the decisions. I mean, because you just lose respect for your yeah. partner. And and you can't, like, you know, if you would tell me something, well, I think that you should maybe think about this. You know, whether whatever the situation was, I would think in my head, you can't even keep yourself following your own fucking rules. How dare you? Yeah. Try to give me any advice. The other piece that I'm curious about, and I know, I, I bet you are too. What so? What does recovery look like? What at what stage in active recovery, when the drinker is not only making progress time wise in sobriety, but making progress in recovery, in creating a safe environment, in being consistent, in being trustworthy. At one point, do they get let back in? If you've been the unilateral parenting decision maker for a few years, I bet that gets real comfortable. I bet the idea of asking someone else's opinion when you haven't had to do that for years, I bet that's not an easy transition back to make. So I'd love it if our listeners would address that as well. Um, and if you're if you're someone in recovery from alcoholism who has been cut off and, and doesn't uh, get consulted in parenting decision decisions. I'd love to hear your feedback as well. I mean, I bet that hurts. I bet that hurt, hurts like hell. I'm not saying it's not deserved in some cases. Probably in most cases, I don't know. But well, I, I remember it hurts when, like hell. I remember when sobriety was was happening for you and things were getting better. And I don't think this was because I didn't want to upset you. And maybe and maybe it was. I would tell the kids to go ask dad because I knew you weren't going to blow up because they always asked me first then I was the intercessor and I would come and ask you on their behalf and I know you even said why are they always coming to ask me things now oh yeah <laughs> and I was like they said mom said come and ask you well you can make a decision on that and I'm like uh well I've been doing it all these years so it was kind of funny it is an interesting transition for sure yeah yeah. Well, this is just another area where I am, you know, shocked to be learning about it and feel incredibly blessed that you you always continue to include me in the parenting decisions. And I have a, I think, a much better understanding for 
why that is not the case in, in other relationships, but we would love to hear directly from the listeners. Again, post to our um, podcast website, the Untoxicated Podcast website, or send me an email at matt at unashamed.com. Not only are we soliciting listener questions, but we're soliciting listener answers. <laughs> Pretty soon, you guys will be running everything, and Sherry and I will be on a beach in Tahiti. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.